Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me is my co-host, Sophia. Hey. And our guest this week is Dr. Bridget Bergquist. Hey there. Hey, Bridget. Hi. <laughs> back for another week. How's, how's, everyone, uh, how's everyone holding out during the pandemic? Some days better than others, but, you know, with two small kids at home, every day is a different challenge. Yeah. I'm sure. I don't have any I don't have any kids, but I have siblings. <laughs> I'm learning a lot about grade one and grade four curriculum. <laughs> My dog I find is becoming really attached to me at like attached at the hip now that I'm here every day. And I just feel so bad for him the day that I have to start like leaving the house again. Like he's just following me. He's like my shadow right now. Yeah, we have the same issue here with uh, our dog Tuzo who is named for John Tuzo Wilson. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> um, but he also is, uh, yeah, there's a, I think all the pets are going to be a little sad when this whole thing. Yeah, I think that it's, it's kind of weird how I, I heard that, I think in, in New York, one of these big cities, uh, like someone took their dog out on a walk during one of the days, like the first days where social distancing was in place. And the dog kind of went, kind of went crazy because it was like, it was like a, it was like a ghost town. Mm. And he was like, what's going on? I wonder like how dogs are actually, you know, taking this pandemic too. Are they, do they notice that something's off or are they just enjoying their owner being at home all the time? Well, my dog has actually kind of learned. Like, so when we see people on trails, we always kind of get off the trail and give them their, you know, two meters. And he oh. just like does it automatically now. He's like very good at like just following us and avoiding people. So he actually kind of picked up the social distancing which I find kind of odd too. I mean, he doesn't do it with dogs, but he does it with people. Yeah. That's so interesting. Usually it's like the other, I feel like it, that's something that's difficult to teach dogs because I feel like they're always just so excited to see new people. They'll just come jumping up. Yeah, it's been weird. I mean, I, I find his behaviors kind of, because sometimes, you know, we, we pass a group of kids and they want to pet him, but he's like standing off to the side. <laughs> 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 the kids are like what's going on yeah so uh bridget uh we know you primarily through our aqueous geochemistry class yeah, and which you love you just love all the math i i enjoyed it after i learned it i didn't like <laughs> the process of learning it because it i found it kind of difficult but mm-hmm. i really liked the perspective that i had after i already had it in my head like i can appreciate that <laughs> the destination was definitely better than the journey well, yeah, I mean, most people don't love the thermodynamics, but in the end, you got to suffer through it a few times, mm-hmm. just a few times. And at least then if you get an intuitive sense of how the world works, even if you never revisit it, you know, quantitatively again, you at least really fundamentally understand why the first and second law of thermodynamics are so important, even in chemistry and in biology and in everything. <laughs> But then what is the real, what is the definition of entropy? I remember that was such a, that was such a hot debate in our class because there's no like clear definition. Well, there's no clear definition, but in chemi- chemistry or chemical uh, thermodynamics, I think it's pretty easy to define it as the, you know, so energy can't be created or destroyed, but when you have an energy transformation, you're going to lose some energy that you can never get back to do useful work. And that's entropy. And it's related to the, oh, that's my dog. Um, anyway, um, it's related to the disorder of things because the more disordered um, a phase has, the, the more quantized states it has. And so that, that thermal energy is spread amongst more states. And the more disordered, the more states, the more you lose energy to just the spreading and sharing of energy across the sort of vibrational molecular um, vibrations. So I always do my entropy dance. So it's the spreading and sharing of thermal energy that you will never get. She is dancing. She is dancing. Yeah. And um, it's the spreading and sharing of thermal energy that you can never get back to do useful work. 
So then aqueous geochemistry, I mean, you're explaining, you're explaining entropy, you you taught (laughs) aqueous geochemistry, but was this the uh, field of earth science that you were interested from the get-go or or what kind of got you started on this, on this path? Uh, So I went to college and I was a double major in journalism and political science. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, well, no. And then I went through a couple year period where I would pick a new major like every semester. Um, and then in my fourth year, I finally declared geology as a major. And in my fifth year, I finally declared <laughs> chemistry as a major. <laughs> um, my school doesn't have different degrees like at U of T. So we have specialists and majors and minors. We didn't have any of that. We just have degrees. But I think by anyone's sort of standards and minors, I would have minors in math, anthropology, um, I did a lot of theater and drama classes because I was really interested in that. I love social art protest sort of um, stuff. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I took, so I took geology in my second year and the teacher was terrible actually, but I just really liked, um, well, and then I got a, a fellowship, a sophomore thesis fellowship, they called it. And I had to pick a professor and the only professor I had ever really talked to because University of Wisconsin, like uh, U of T is very big, was my TA in my geology class. And he happened to be a young professor who was sort of learning the course from the older professor. And the older, yeah, so it was sort of one of those. So I just went up to him and I said, hey, I have some money to do research in the summer. And he's like, hey, we're doing a rafting trip down the San Juan River and in Utah, you want to come? And I'm like, yeah. And <laughs> thus I did sequence stratigraphy for a summer and sandstone petrology, which made me never want to do petrology ever again. Uh, <laughs> that streamlined you, <laughs> at least a little bit. <laughs> Looking at sandstones under the microscope is possibly one of the most boring things <laughs> I've ever done. <laughs> it was before computers uh, could do the, all these measurements. So I had to measure 200 grains per slide, sphericity, size, whatever, all that crap. <laughs> and you had to do 200 grains per slide. And I was just okay. like, I am going to shoot myself. Um, but I really liked working in the rock lab. So I, I loved making, uh, you know, I loved cutting rocks and polishing rocks. And I made a lot of presents for friends that summer. So there you go. Works. Yeah. Nothing like getting a rock. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of fell into it. And so I don't know. And I, I was just taking chemistry along the way too. I was really, I think my parents' attitude was just kept, if they just kept me in school, that someday I'd figure out or fall onto a major accidentally. And, mm-hmm. um, and I did. Can <laughs> <laughs> the but, longer you stay, the longer you kind of narrow down your options. Well, and it was, you know, it was back when school wasn't so expensive, you know, like I think my most expensive semester tuition was $1,400, right, for the state school. Mm. I mean, today, for someone to just wander around in undergrad would be a lot more expensive. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. So, uh, what would you say guides your, your sense of, of research, what is it that gets something interesting to you or, or piques your interest in, in deciding what it is that you want to look into next? Yeah, I don't, I think I'm always more, um, I'm inspired a lot by my, my coworkers. So um, if someone has an interesting problem and I can help out, with whatever tools are in my toolbox, I often get very excited. I like team projects. I like it when everyone's sort of tackling sort of one big project, you know? So I've always been part of these bigger projects. Like um, I was part of a biocomplexity project for my PhD on iron in the ocean. And then, um, you know, I, I've done a couple of things since then, but I've been part of what's called geotraces and a big ocean survey program. Um, so I've just, I, I like it when you're just tackling some big problem and, and you kind of fit, you find your place in that, you know, and there's so many interesting questions in earth sciences that I don't really feel like we lack for questions. Like, oh, for sure. <laughs> you know? so it can be, and, you know, and, and generally I've just always loved metals, redox chemistry, 
Um, I love, I love wet chemistry. I love wet labs. So for me, that was just, you also have to love the day to day work. So I always tell people you can love your research project and that's great. But if you don't love the day to day grunt work associated with that, then you're not going to really find, you know, that you're interested in doing all that. So it's, it's hard. Like one time I had a student join my lab. He clearly loved geochemistry. He loved modeling geochemistry data, but he hated being in the lab. And I said, you know what? You're going to have a miserable four years if you continue down this road. Because you really got to like the day-to-day. If you don't like it, mm-hmm. and every field has its own version of grunt work. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to predict what kind of grunt work someone's going to not mind doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's that's part of the reason why why we invite why we invited you on the show today because we know that you're a really big expert in uh, in in chemistry and also uh, mercury. So that's yeah. that's a really big topic. And just to give a little preamble to the paper that we'll be going over today, yeah. uh, specifically, mercury is used uh, in the industry in gold mining, and gold mining has been around for thousands of years. And yeah. looking back, we've had plenty of time to figure out how to do it in an environmentally conscious way. But on the other hand, we only really started uh, worrying about the side effects of gold mining in the last century or so. Mm-hmm. So uh, before that, we see that there was you know, little to no regulation on gold mining. And actually, I, I recently took a short course uh, on environmental law on Coursera, and I learned that in the States, you would have to prove that the environmental damage caused by mining constituted what's called like a nuisance, mm. uh, which is a somewhat vague term for something that's you know out of the ordinary that caused a disturbance. And most of the time, since there was no precedent to mining law, it was hard to change mining regulations. But you know, eventually things got better. But these changes didn't happen overnight, and they didn't happen around the globe either. So in countries where regulations are harder to impose, mining operations still produce uh, a lot of environmental contaminants. So one in particular is the method of using elemental mercury to extract uh, gold from soil and sediments. So uh, Bridget, can you kind of describe how this process works chemically? Well, so about 20% of the world's gold is produced by what we call artisanal and small scale gold miners. Um, These are not large scale gold uh, companies, which use cyanide mostly to extract gold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we can discuss cyanide as a separate issue. But um, so these are, these are, I think the definition is for small scale, it's less than 150 tons per day. And then I forget what it is for truly artisanal. But artisanal guys, if you're in the field, I mean, it's hard for me to summarize. So it's done in over 70 countries, mostly developing countries. Um, even if mercury has been made illegal, mercury is the easiest way for them to extract gold but they do it in so many different ways. I mean, I've been on the ground in Ecuador and Brazil, and um, I've been, I've seen a lot of pictures from Peru where we're working now. There's so many different ways that people do it. So you'll see everything from the old time sluice boxes, you know, the, the sluice boxes where they're running sediments over like a carpet laden with mercury mm. um, to extract the gold. You'll see various types of gravity um, separators because gold tends to be very heavy. So you'll get it in the fines. Um, you'll see, um, people panning, (laughs) like, um, you know, I remember being, um, in Ecuador from in front of one of the small scale shops or processing centers and their tailings had still had so much mercury in it that the the people using the panners were still panning for them in the the tailings. Um, and so it's just done a lot of different places. And with the price of gold being so high, it's a, it's a really, um, I would say it's actually a really important way for people in developed countries to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's driven by obviously first or developed countries desire for gold. But, um, you know, if, as long as the price is there, people are going to do it. And if you let a large scale gold mine come in, um, less of the money will usually stay in the country. So a lot of times in these countries, or a lot of these deposits that are, that they're actually mining are not of interest to a large scale gold mine. They're not concentrated enough, um, but it's mm-hmm. a mixture. Sometimes it's fluvial and sedimentary gold. That's Peru and in um, Brazil a lot of times, but in Ecuador they also are doing what's called whole ore amalgamation, where they basically have big mechanized pressures. They're crushing the ore and then 
through a variety of techniques, they're adding mercury. Um, my favorite one is actually like a chancha, which is like a big steel barrel drum. They throw the rocks in and the mercury and they, you know, they twist it and stir it. Hmm. Um, and that one. So it's just like binding to the gold and then the gold goes yeah, off and there have, and then they take it. And then you, you have basically these large balls of mercury that have a lot of gold in them. And then you just burn the mercury off. And um, it goes into the air. And it goes into the air or, well, and there's a lot of mercury in the tailings usually a lot of times too associated with these. So that goes into the waterways. Um, I'm just on a paper. Well, it's the draft. I just saw the final draft, but where they're actually showing that forest next to sort of what we call artisanal and small scale gold mining because forests take up mercury vapor through the leaves and then those leaves drop to the, to the soil forests next to these artisanal and small scale gold mining operations are taking up huge amounts of mercury and storing them in the soils. And mm -hmm. so then it becomes an issue. So one of my papers in, in uh, Brazil was on the fact that actually what was causing the big mercury problems in the region was deforestation. Cause these, there's so much storage of mercury in these soils when you, when you deforest for agriculture or for other reasons, all that mercury washes out of the soils and down into the, into the ecosystems. And mm -hmm. you know, depending on where you are, you know, obviously you have hundreds of years of mercury use, well, more than that, but hundreds of years of mercury use where they were probably adding substantial amounts globally to the soils. But then mm -hmm. you also have a regionally high mercury use because of, of artisanal and small scale gold mining. And South America, it's been going on for a couple of, at least the, the most recent gold rush, obviously there were earlier ones, but for at least four decades now, since about the 80s, since the price of gold went up quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's kind of coeval with um, also the high rates of deforestation that have happened come in the last couple of decades as well. So it's like a multi-faceted issue, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that I'm glad that you mentioned in South America, because the study that we're actually going to read for this, yeah. uh, for this episode, it's talking about the, the health effects of all these contaminants that you mentioned. So Dean, do you want to lead us in the paper summary? It's actually two high profile papers that kind of came out side by side. Uh, one of them investigated the mercury exposure of people in the area, in the hair and the blood of the people. Um, some of them living hundreds of kilometers away from the actual site. And the other one looked at the impact of the exposure, how it affected their physical and cognitive development, especially in children. There was a wide range of mercury exposure. Some people just had one part per billion. Others had 45, the highest was 45 parts per million in their hair and 2.5 parts per million is the WHO's exposure limit. And so some counterintuitive results of this study, distance from the mining site did not predict exposure risk. No. So that's, that's kind of scary. Whether or not you're in a native versus a non-native community was a strong predictor. Mm -hmm. So this could be a reliance on the local environment for their food or sustainability for activities. And there was also a wide variation within communities themselves. However, there was somewhat of a connection with socioeconomic status. Yeah. So, I mean, mercury, this is why mercury is a bugger um, sort of in the, in the contaminant discussions, because oftentimes where, where mercury is emitted is separate from where mercury is a problem for humans and wildlife because there's a couple of important steps that have to happen. One, mercury has to be admitted, um, and then it has to enter an environment um, where it is methylated by bacteria. Um, these are usually anoxic or microenvironments that are anoxic, uh, where the bacteria turn it into methylmercury, and that's the form that bioaccumulates. And a lot of times this happens in sort of wetlands and aquatic ecosystems that go anoxic. Um, but it can also happen within soils. In fact, that's the paper we're just submitting um, probably in the next couple of weeks. So it can happen in a variety of places where methylation happens. And then that methylation then bioaccumulates through the food web. And so, so globally, we've increased the pool of circulating mercury, let's say three to five fold in industrial times. 
And then people can argue pre-industrial how much of that mercury is natural and how much isn't because humans have been using mercury for a long time. But let's say that three to five fold number. So you're increasing mercury deposition everywhere globally, even in the Arctic, let's say, where we know our First Nations peoples are also being exposed to really high levels of mercury, mostly through their diet. So then if you live in an area where there's a lot of methylation potential, so the Amazon has a lot of great environments where methylation is going to happen. The Arctic, the permafrost, all that has a lot of great environments where methylation is going to happen. Then you get bioaccumulation in the food web. And if you have people and wildlife that live on those aquatic food sources, um, eating them many times a day sometimes, then their risk is so much higher. So then you add that. Now let's add on to that um, even higher background of mercury in the Amazon because of the artisanal and small-scale gold mining that's elevating sort of the regional levels of mercury. Plus you have really highly productive forests which draw mercury out of the air and put it into the soils. And then you have deforestation and other things happening that are all loading the local aquatic ecosystems with mercury. And so you don't have to be close to the artisanal and small-scale gold mining for it to affect you because it's bioaccumulating within the food web and the whole regional background everywhere. The global background is higher and then their regional background is probably higher as well. And then that's bioaccumulated and magnified through the food web. Mm -hmm. Now, are you saying that inorganic mercury, there's a certain background level of methyl mercury and inorganic mercury that's safe or that exists without the... Oh, yeah, yeah. The mercury had a very active cycle before humans started perturbing it. Um, so, yeah, so we've increased it, but we, it's always been around. And there's always been... Organ it's always been methylated. And I think the methylation pathway um, they did like molecular clock stuff on it um, and it's at least probably two billion if not um, older that enzymatic pathway for methylation um, so the genes have been around for a while so methylation is something that's that organisms have been doing for a long time um, sulfate reducers do it iron reducers do it um, methanogens do it so there's a variety of bacteria and archaea that are capable of methylation and then that's the methylmercury that bioaccumulates in the food web. There's always been probably some, yeah, there's, it's always been around you, um, but not at the levels. So the thing with something that's biomagnified, if you increase the concentrations four to five fold at the base, that gets biomagnified much greater up through the food web, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for people, so I would say like for our First Nations people who rely heavily on aquatic marine food webs um, and also um, freshwater uh, things. And for people who in the Amazon, you know, eat fish two to three times a day, sometimes, especially if they're poor, they're not going to go and buy food somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're getting a huge exposure. And so the fish in Madras de Dios, which is where you're talking about, they are a little elevated um, in the regions of where the indigenous people live, but it's just the amount of of, of fish that they're eating, which is part of the problem um, as well. But there's not like an easy alternative to say, stop eating this really easy, nutritious food that, that, you, that you have right there in your lake. And a lot of times too, they like to eat the biggest, oldest fish. Like that's, <laughs> but yeah. they're often the ones that are highest in mercury because right. they've been bioaccumulating mercury for a while. So it's it's a complicated um, um, issue. So okay, so the, yeah, there's not much alternative for the people who rely on the fish. What about alternatives for the miners? So like when I was in Turkey, they said that they didn't use cyanide; they mm -hmm. just used water gravity, and they got like ninety percent, ninety something percent of the gold out of it that way. But if they used cyanide, they'd get an extra three or five percent of the gold. So gravity separation can work. I've been to a few uh, model type uh, processing centers that use very fancy seven stage, 12 stage gravity separation techniques. I don't, I've never heard over 90% for them. Like that seems okay. um, really high. Not sure how they're getting at that number. 
but it might depend on their sediments and their local um, where they're getting their gold. I was at a place where it was ore. Um, it was ore mercury, not uh, fluvial um, when I saw this plant. Um, but even at that final stage, so at that final, final stage where they had the finds that were gold rich, they used mercury on that. Now they used a lot less mercury because of all the gravity separation, but they still had to purify the gold from everything else. So that's when they used the mercury was at the very, very end. Um, so they used way less mercury than processing centers that were just doing what we consider one of the worst things, which is whole ore amalgamation, which uses a ton of mercury and wastes a lot of mercury and only gets 30 to 40% of the gold. Right. Just calling on some things I learned in ore deposits this last year, yeah. gold can like attach to the minerals at this molecular level, or it could also just kind of grow its own yeah. pure veins. So I would imagine like the ones that are growing in these larger pure veins, that's much easier to get a higher percentage from yeah. gravity versus the ones that are just locked into the minerals themselves. Yeah, so I would imagine it depends on a lot. I've never heard anything as high as over 90% unless it's being crushed and then using cyanide because cyanide is very, but cyanide gets all the metals, right? So our study in Ecuador, we've had a couple, I think three actually, um, papers come out on that. Ecuador is a kind of an interesting area because they're using mercury and cyanide at a lot of the places, but they're only um, pulling the gold out and then they're putting everything else down the river. So when you use cyanide and you have no, no real environmental regulation, that becomes an even worse disaster because now you're putting, I think I measured a, over a thousand parts per million lead and zinc and copper and nickel in the river sediments 120 kilometers downstream from the 120 kilometers. Yeah. So because you're extracting with cyanide, you're extracting so many metals. And, but now the risk factor was a little bit different in Ecuador because a lot of the local communities didn't eat fish. Well, partly because nothing lived in that river very well, but- um, I wonder why. But they, and they imported mostly um, uh, marine fish if they did eat fish or, um, and they also ate a lot of meat. So it depends a lot on the diet too of the people, how much, exposure now miners themselves though if they're burning amalgam they're breathing in a lot of mercury that's like a different toxic pathway than methyl mercury exposure so right. miners miners can have very acute uh, mercury exposure issues that have to do with breathing in inorganic mercury um, and their exposure to that i'm guessing regulations on face masks and, and protective equipment is is non-existent my favorite picture that I sometimes show in talks is the we were part of this uh, this big grant um, out of the U.S. and we went down. It was funded a little bit by the U.S. State Department um, and a variety of other issues. And we held this workshop down in Ecuador, and they took us on this uh, tour of one of their processing centers that they were really proud of. And we're all sitting there in safety gear. They made us put hats on. They made us put vests on. And then there's a guy behind us pouring cyanide into the cyanide pits. He has no shirts on, no shirt on, and no shoes on. Oh no! <laughs> oh man! Oh, man. <laughs> that really shows the, the difference. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. So you know, it's it's really hard. Um, it's a really hard socioeconomic issue. It's a really hard. Um, it's hard for so many reasons because I, I, you know, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm born and raised in the U S so I have a little bit of that. If people can make money, they should do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting other people. But the problem in this case, it is hurting other people, um, sometimes themselves, but in Peru and Madre de Dios, where you were talking about the miners are separate people than the indigenous people. And often they've come in because of the, the, the new, interoceanic highway that was built. So they're not indigenous to the area. So now you have um, sort of external Peruvians coming in that aren't local Peruvians and they're messing up the environment for the indigenous people who live there. Mm. So it's a complicated um, issue in that, in that area. And the people who are 
suffering the most are obviously the indigenous groups that um, live off the fish. And those numbers you quote are some of the highest blood and mercury levels ever measured um, in groups of of indigenous people. Well, of people anywhere, really. and some and the kids and the levels of mercury in the kids are way higher than anything we see most places. I think there have been some communities though in the, in northern Canada that have similar levels, though. So I I should state that Canada has never fixed its mercury issues either, really. Right. So actually, I, I'm I'm glad that you touched on that because so I mean in in Canada and the U.S there's been legislature that's that makes it you know harder to just dump out these contaminants like mercury into the environment cyanide there's there's prevalent measures but the thing is probably some of that mercury that that existed from when the legislature didn't exist is still in the environment so i wanted to ask a hypothetical question that if we stopped using mercury in gold mining today right now how long would it take for it to like flush out of the environment or is that even possible um, it's possible. So mercury is emitted, it deposits, it gets re-emitted, it deposits, it gets re-emitted, it gets cycled through the environment many times before it's finally sequestered, let's say, in marine sediments where it can be buried and mm-hmm. actually be removed from the surface reservoirs. Um, I don't think that's a good idea on how long legacy mercury will stick around um, mm-hmm. in the sort of surface reservoirs. I want to say it's probably it's at least you know uh centuries if not millennia but you know a lot of times the food web reacts much faster so there's the experimental lakes area here in uh, Canada they've done some great mercury manipulation experiments and you know direct deposition to lakes from the air um, accounts for a lot of the mercury that gets methylated and then goes into the food web in some lakes not all lakes (laughs) let's state this I mean, they didn't have massive deforestation going on in their experiments, but they actually saw the, and when they took the mercury away, the fish recovered, you know, within a decade, you saw levels start to really kind of lower. And they've seen that through the uh, northwest of the U.S. as well, that levels in, in fish are coming down over the last 25, 30 years where we've had stricter air quality um, things. But everywhere else in the world, you know, they don't see similar declines because levels of mercury aren't going down as dramatically, right? Because global emissions are similar, if not, they've kind of stagnated because you have Asia coming up, you have artisanal small-scale gold mining, which is the largest emitter of mercury on the planet, um, next to then coal burning. So there's been a lot of additions of coal plants in Asia, um, and, you know, and, and Asia is a particular problem for the Arctic because a lot of Asian air masses get up into the Arctic during what we call the Arctic haze period in the spring and winter. And so a lot of that mercury can make it to the Arctic during certain times of year. And so it's a global issue because it gets globally spread through the air. If we, I mean, I feel like in some areas you would see mercury levels drop sort of within a decade or two of, of emissions. But then in some areas, if you're deforesting and you're taking, soils are the largest surface reservoir storing mercury on the planet. So if you disturb them, they will release mercury um, into downstream aquatic ecosystems. And so you've got to constantly keep an eye on kind of on that as well. So we have a lot, I mean, actually soils have been storing <laughs> a lot of contaminants for centuries. And so they they are sort of an area that you need to think about when when you're thinking about contaminant remobilization in certain areas. So don't let your kids eat those mud pies they're making in the backyard. <laughs> well, you know, well, well put. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up Bills in the community. Yeah, I mean... There's always benefits and there's always pros and cons to everything. Like fish, you know, there's some really great studies out of the Seychelles Islands where, you know, the benefits of eating fish outweigh the negatives of mercury for quite a while because of the health benefits. So they don't start to see a negative until people get up to that sort of eating fish on that two to three times a day, especially if it's a, if it's a, it's fish that have a lot of mercury in them in particular. So 
Um, I mean, obviously there are, there are First Nations groups where they, they definitely see, um, you know, mental, um, cognitive and various other effects from mercury throughout the Arctic. And, you know, polar bears are affected as well. Um, so, you know, it's not just, it's not, right, not that just, makes sense. Um, you know, and you have certain whale populations that have really high uh, mercury as well. So, you know, these cognitive effects are, you know, they do, they do affect, you know, a lot, uh, they, they do affect a lot of other aspects of, of, of humans' lives and various, you know, I think ADHD is up, a bunch of other things with the kids that have higher mercury exposures, stuff like that. Yeah, I, w- I want to touch, before we finish up with this discussion, I want to touch up on the, these negative effects. So I'm going to quote the paper, uh, mercury is a neurotoxic metal that can lead to muscle weakness. Mm-hmm. and problems with coordination in high doses, and neurodevelopmental delay, hyperactivity, and IQ deficits in lower doses. Yeah. Children with hair mercury levels above the WHO reference level scored 1.56 IQ points lower in general cognitive ability, 3.16 points lower in auditory processing ability, and 1.72 points lower in working memory ability. Can yeah. you kind of touch on like on why that is at all? Do you know anything about that? <laughs> I, no, I'm not a biologist. Uh, okay. um, I mean, I saw Claire talk about this data. She's the author of the of the paper. One of them. It was really interesting hearing how she had to figure out ways to design tests to study IQ and cognitive abilities in in a group of people who don't aren't like kids here. In North America, the tests are all, you know, designed to study our kids or kids that have a certain exposure to technology, various other things. So she had to really come up with different ways to kind of study their cognitive ability and executive functioning. I mean, I don't really don't know the biology of it. I do know that mercury does go to the brain, mm-hmm. right? Methylmercury, and so it is something that will disrupt various functions I, and I don't really understand I must say sounds like, like uh, lead in that way oh yeah lead's a neurotoxin too um, and then both lead and mercury are neurotoxins but they also affect other things too like cardiovascular um, health and a variety of other things so we always focus in on the the brain but um, there is other parts of the body that they affect as well I mean in general your body eliminates mercury but it doesn't eliminate it at a rate high enough um, to to overcome if you eat a lot of fish and then it gets to your brain and and it just messes with stuff and uh, I know like with the with they used to like test people's peripheral vision like a lot of times that is affected um, obviously yeah hyperactivity uh, behavioral issues but a lot of that has also been linked again to lead right and and if you read those studies in a little bit more detail, I don't know if you if they said it, but those kids also have some pretty high lead levels as well, which is another interesting um, aspect. I don't know where the lead's coming from, and when I asked, they didn't know either. I mean, it's clear where the mercury is coming from um, from their diet, but fish don't bioaccumulate lead, so I don't fully understand why their lead levels are also not as high and not as high, not always above WHO, but they're still elevated compared to other groups. So Bridget, I wanted to kind of go back to a point that you made before that the, a lot of the South American economy depends on this artisanal small, uh, small scale mining, particularly in certain countries like Peru, Ecuador, and partially it's driven by the demand of developed countries like the US. I mean, I recently watched the Netflix documentary Gold, which talks yeah. about that. So how can we reconcile that fact? I mean, we're playing a really big role in this and, and we seem to be kind of putting our hands up in the air being like, oh, we're not responsible. So h- how do we reconcile this? Well, <laughs> we do that for a lot of things. It's not just gold. I mean, the, I mean, the net movement of resources from developing to developed countries is pretty stark in almost every category. Food, um, you know, uh, any sort of product, really. I mean, I used to talk about it. It's even like wheat, you know, um, shrimp, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what it is, but gold too. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn on this. I, uh, 
yes, we have a responsibility. Um, and a lot of, you know, the UN um, has funded a lot of work in these areas. Um, USAID funds a lot um, in these areas, uh, the US State Department. But, you know, it's really hard to actually make effective change. So Marcelo Vega, who's at UBC, um, I mean, he's been trying for 30 years to get the miners to, to do things in another way other than mercury, but it's just been like an uphill battle. You know, even getting them to use a sort of retorts or something where they condense the mercury um, is really hard because they can't see it, they don't like it, they think it burns too slow. Um, there's a variety of reasons why it's just really hard to fight it. And people, you know, they're trying to feed their families and they're trying to make money. And yeah, if the money's there, uh, they're going to do it. And, you know, the other thing too, to remember like in Ecuador and stuff like that, you know, poverty is also a very big killer. Yeah. So this mining is, you know, it's money in their pockets. They're, you know, some of the mining communities, I know it's not fair. It's never fair. No, nothing's ever fair. But the mining communities, the schools are better. The kids are eating better. The nutrition's better. Mm-hmm. Now, in Ecuador, they were playing soccer on a old tailings pile that was turned into a green space. And you could actually oh, measure wow. the mercury with some instruments coming off of there. But, you know, I mean, I mean, this is our, the history of, you know, sort of the human race and exploitation and resources. It's really, it's really hard to say, you know, are we, are we responsible? Yes. But how much can we do? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to continue to run the world as a sort of free market capitalistic society, I don't know how you get around this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Take some big people from a lot of different. Yeah. Now, if you want to, if you want to go away from capitalism, that's a different discussion. Right. (laughs) But I don't see how you fix it. I mean, so I will say some of the more unique solutions to the gold mining issue that I've seen um, are from market-driven solutions. So you know how, like, uh, with the the blood diamonds, like. People can choose, or with coffee, you can choose to buy coffee that follows certain guidelines that make it better for the for the locals who are growing it for a variety right. of reasons, right? You can choose that. Same with diamonds. You can choose to buy diamonds that are, you know, whatever, and pay more for it. And a lot of times that can work, right? The problem with gold right now is um, there's no way to trace it, to authenticate it. So... Mm-hmm until we develop those tools to kind of, there could be market ways to say, we're not going to buy gold that isn't adhering to some environmental standards and how it's being produced. But the problem with that is, is actually a lot of this gold is done either informally or illegally. So how do you trace it? Right. Right. And so I think those are things that could be developed though. And, and, and I'll, so that's probably one of the only real tools we have in a capitalistic sort of society to sort of put our will onto um, the people who, well, I guess the people who are, who are buying the gold and trying to sell it to other people. But I don't, I, with gold, it, it hasn't, it hasn't occurred yet, but there is um, a fair bit of work being done in that area to try to, because I should say artisanal and small-scale gold mining um, is only half of all artisanal and small-scale small scale mining. So there's oh. many other elements that are being exploited in a variety of ways, either illegally or informally around the world. And when you're in that artisanal and small-scale category, environmental regulations are usually minimal, non-existent, loosely enforced... <laughs> if they exist um and so it's not just gold um right you know but that being said you know for a lot of these people it it's a buck you know it's a way to make a living and uh unfortunately my 
my libertarian upbringing by my father says, oh, let him make a buck. But then, right. my, but then my socially responsible person says, you can't make a buck if you're hurting others, though. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good summary, I would say, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of times change doesn't come from top down, right? It's very rare that I've seen an environmental problem solved top down. Well, the Clean Air Act, I should state that. The Clean Air Act, um, the ozone hole. But a lot of times these sort of more local contamination issues need to be solved bottom up. So the people have to get, and, and people in Peru are, they're mobilizing, they're, they've protested, they're fighting, they want regulations put on this stuff. So, I mean, Peru has declared mercury a national emergency a couple of times in the last couple of years. So, I mean, people do want, they've shut down the artisanal guys a few times, but then they just pop up elsewhere, which is a little bit of an issue. Um, Ecuador has tried a variety of techniques. Um, some have worked better than others. Uh, they've tried to you know, have sort of one big tailings pit that's lined at least. Mm -hmm. And then you don't, you know, but there's always questions of like, who's maintaining it and, you know, yeah. and they've tried a few and they, and they try to encourage some of these like fancier processing centers that use a lot of gravity. But the problem with that is that you set up kind of a weird socioeconomic system where the people who own the processing centers are now exploiting the artisanal uh, miners. Yeah. Right. So it's like every single time, every single time you make one change, there's going to be, it's not always, it's not always simple to figure out how it's going to affect the whole yeah. community. Um, and, and I was at a meeting, I guess, at, um, with the, there's a group at Duke, they call themselves Team Gold. I actually, I think that's really clever. <laughs> <laughs> And they have a and and actually uh, Claire the the person on your that you the the group the group doing the cognitive work is is also there, um, and you know the the students were all talking about how we should do stuff how should we should change stuff and I I just said you know when we it's funny that first world students sometimes think we can solve developing country problems we haven't even fixed the problems in our own country like yeah, <laughs> yeah that's. <laughs> You know, we have like we're the experts. Isn't it like twenty-five yeah. percent of First Nations groups don't even have clean water mm -hmm. in Canada? We have huge mercury problems, we have PCB problems. I mean and and then, you know, and then don't get me started on the US. I mean that's so basically I would say people in glass houses shouldn't throw <laughs> throw mm -hmm. stones, right? Like we're not doing great um with treating our sort of less you know, are indigenous and poor people well either, you know, in these right. first world countries. So I mean, most environmental problems in the U.S. Ha occur in low socioeconomic neighborhoods. Yeah. You know? And uh, I don't know the stats as well in Canada, but I do know that it's not dissimilar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I would say be a little careful we haven't solved it here, so I don't know why we think we can solve it somewhere else. But I think yeah. my, so I should say my goal in Peru, I work with a group called Cincia. It's the Center for Innovation in the Amazon um, Center. And they host a lot of different people from, um, from all over the world to do studies. And we actually work with local Peruvian scientists. Like we don't go in. Um, and do anything on our own. And we've actually equipped them. Like this was Natalie. Do you know my grad student, Natalie? One of her mm -hmm. projects was equipping them with something called a passive air sampler, which allows them to monitor mercury in the air, but it requires mm -hmm. no power and no real technical abilities to deploy. Um, and so you can go and set them out. And we, give, we gave them over 200 for free. We showed them how to work them. We showed them um, we train them, they've been deploying them, they've been reusing them, they have the instruments to, they have a lab down there with a mercury analyzer, so they can do a lot of their own work. So I would okay. say my, I think my thing is always just to empower the people to do their own stuff, because uh, someone coming from another country, we write our little papers, we don't really, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, what do we get back? That's, that's good advice. <laughs> you make yeah. a point. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, summary. It's been really it's been great. We have two quick questions for you before okay. you go. 
Yeah. Um, mine is if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's earth sciences or or your political sciences or something, what what would it be? Um. So what is a better form of capitalism? Mm, political science. All right. I get that. I would still say that I think capitalism is a good base to work from, but I think we could have a better form of it. So you'd, you'd like to find that next step? I would love for us to think about how you value different sectors differently and value work differently. Hmm. So that capitalism could work to benefit more people in a better way. And I think that fits in very well with uh, with what we talked about today. Yeah. I guess the last, the last question, absolutely. Yeah. So it wouldn't be so much science, but, you know, science fits in there, right? It informs it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bridget, my question is, and uh, we may not have enough time for this answer since clearly you, you've jumped around a lot in terms of uh, fields, <laughs> but if you weren't an earth scientist, who would you be? Oh, you know, I thought if I ever went back to school, I would be a psychologist and a neuroscientist. I actually find all this cognitive, the way the brain works, fascinating, even though I don't know nearly enough. But maybe that's why I find it fascinating, because I don't know (laughs) enough about it. (laughs) I just think the way the human brain works is just crazy. And it's way more complicated than, I don't know, anything, right? I mean, you think the earth is complicated and the earth is complicated, but you know, the brain is like, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, weird thing. It does a lot of things. That's, yeah. It's a whole other beast. <laughs> <laughs> but I also thought I'd like to be a math major too. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. But that's like a different thing. That would just be, but then I thought that, and now I, I've sat on a few math committees and now I think, mm-hmm. no. I don't want like, to. You have to like because you have to like the day to day grunt work. If you yeah, don't like the day to day grunt work, it doesn't matter how interesting the question is to you. <laughs> Just remember that you gotta like it. You gotta like what you do in day to day because everyone's got to do the grunt work. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Put in the effort. <laughs> well, Dean, how would you like to finish us off with the weekly quote? In nature, nothing exists alone. And that was from Rachel Carson, Seven yes. Spring. It is very true. It's a very complicated world out there. And I would actually like to add that what's great about Team Gold and what we're doing in Cynthia is that it's often that geochemists aren't brought into these health issues. You know, so they always concentrate on the health of the community, but they're not really thinking like how is the mercury getting there? And it's getting there through the environment and the geochemistry. And so I think what's really cool about what they're doing in Peru is they're trying to bring us all together. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really good. Good, yeah. good for future work. I mean, if we're yeah. if we're to develop this uh, this even further. Yeah. Well, Bridget, thank you, thank you so much. We had a fantastic time uh, talking to you and getting your insight. So thank you so much for joining us. And next time we can talk about mercury and mass extinctions because that's even better. Oh, oh. oh. we have to have oh, yeah. you back. all right i'll talk thank you again to our guests thank you to our listeners and we hope you tune in next week for a brand new episode of earth news interviews until then leave no stone unturned earth news interviews is brought to you by the department of earth sciences at u of t the views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university